So we're, we're jumping out of um, Genesis for about 10 weeks, eight weeks um, for the eight marks of the church, which we're going to be looking at. And yeah, I forgot to dismiss the kids. Yeah, children ages three through second grade do dismiss the children's church. <clears throat> but we're, yeah, we're stepping out for eight weeks uh, to do look at the eight marks of the church. Uh, two other weeks at the end of February, we'll be looking at stewardship. Um, so that will be with the Life Institute on the on the 20th, and then the 27th, we'll have uh, Piercing Word with us also uh, talking about stewardship, and then we'll complete the eight marks of the church. But um, you see the eight marks there. This is eight marks of the church um, that should be, marked, should be a part of who we are as a body of believers. And so this is all a part of vision. As we start this year, 2022, we had an opportunity to work with Restore Renewal Ministries and, and uh, had you all participate through surveys and through different um, group settings uh, to help us with that process. And so uh, these messages are going to be a, a combination of what we learned through that, uh, that whole process of Restore Renewal Ministries and then through the dream retreat that we had at, uh, at the beginning of November. But um, uh, so these messages come from Restore Renewal Ministries, uh, the outline at least, and so I've added to that as well. But the basic outline is from, um, is from Matt Kaiser. But um, think about urban legends for a minute, or myths. What are some myths or urban legends that you've heard about? And, and you're like, I don't know if that's true or not. I, I don't know if, if that particular myth is, is right. And so uh, one that I looked up and was, uh, it goes along with this picture here, and it's the killer in the back seat, also known as the high beams, you know, uh, urban legend. It's a common car crime urban legend, well known mostly in the United States and the United Kingdom. And the legend involves a woman who's driving and being followed by a strange car or truck, right? And the mysterious pursuer flashes his high beams, tailgates her, and sometimes even rams her vehicle. When she finally gets home, or makes it home, she realizes that the driver was trying to warn her that there was a man, a murderer, a rapist, or a, an escaped mental patient, hiding in her back seat, right? And each time the man sat up to attack her, the driver behind in that vehicle used his high beams to scare the killer, after which the killer would duck down. <clears throat> so... I don't know if it's true or not. It's an urban legend. <laughs> Have any of you ever experienced that, driving around, people flashing their high beams at you? No. See, I haven't either. That's why I think it's an urban legend. But what we also have within the church today is there are many common myths about the church that are misguided at best and dangerous at worst. And so we're going to be looking at a myth each week as we go through the eight marks of the church and then see how that is dispelled in Scripture, that this myth is not true. <clears throat> of the church, and we're going to be looking at the thing that is true of the church. And so the myth this morning that we're going to look at is, if your church is filled with people, you have a healthy church, right? We're thinking, oh, well, we're healthy because we have a whole bunch of people. All the pews are filled. We're a healthy church. Not necessarily. This myth, if believed, can be dangerous because of two reasons. Number one, it can cause us to focus more on how many people are in our church instead of how Jesus is at work in the lives of the people who are in our church. That's what we want. We want there to be transformation that's taking place in the lives of the people of the church, just not people sitting in the pew and checking a box off each Sunday going, oh, I feel good now. No, we want there to be transformation. We want there to be discipleship and growth that takes place in the life of the believer. The second reason is it can give a false sense of security to those who attend our church, that they are part of his, meaning God's church, simply because they show up to our church. And again, that's that checkbox concept. Well, I'm a part of the kingdom of God. I'm a part of God's church. 
because I come to church. But it's just a checkbox for me. I don't really, you know, the, the guy that stands up there and talks, I don't really listen to him. I kind of fall asleep, and, and uh, the worship's okay. But uh, and it, we come for the wrong reasons. And so that's why it can be dangerous. It's like people think, I'm, I'm good. I'm good with God because I've been in church. But he hasn't really transformed me. We know this is a myth because Jesus said the first mark of a healthy church would be a church filled with people who are filled with the Spirit. And that's what we want. We want a church that's filled with the Holy Spirit. Because when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, it's going to transform us. And we're not going to be who we once were. And so as we think about that, would you just pause with me this morning? And let's just commit this message to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you this morning. We want to be a people that are filled with the Holy Spirit. Lord, as I heard recently, um, uh, an illustration. Uh, that's w- what I want for my life is that, that not that I have a monopoly on the gospel or a monopoly on the Holy Spirit, but that the Holy Spirit has monopoly on me. I pray that that would be everyone's desire here today, that the Holy Spirit would have a monopoly on their lives, Lord God, that it would transform them, that we would be a people that are spirit-filled, that we would be a church that is spirit-filled. And through that, Lord God, we're going to transform and we're going to impact our community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, that is our desire. And so, Lord, we ask for the desire of our hearts today. And we just commit this message to you, and we ask this in your precious Son's name. Amen. Now, we're not going to be in just one scripture today. We're going to be jumping around in several different ones, so three in particular, because we're going to be looking at the mark of the Spirit-filled church and the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of the early church, and the teachings of the apostles. So those are the three points today, and then we'll look at a a picture as well, a metaphor. So the Spirit-filled church, let's look at John chapter 3, verses 5 to 7, and we begin to see the teachings of Jesus here as we look at at John chapter 3, verses 5 to 7. This is what God's Word says. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. So what is Jesus doing here? Who is he talking to? What is the setting, the background behind what Jesus is trying to communicate here, being uh, baptized you know, with the water and Spirit? Well, Nicodemus has come to Jesus at night. He's a, a Pharisee. He's a Jew. He's trying to understand Jesus and, and his teachings and what he's sharing with, with, uh, with the people there in the synagogue. And Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born again. Now, Nic- Nicodemus is trying to understand how someone can be born again physically. And that's what he says uh, prior to this. Is, how can someone return into their mother's womb and be born again? I don't understand. And Jesus is helping Nicodemus to understand that he is not talking about being born again physically, but rather spiritually, being born from above. That's what he's really talking about here. And he says, being born of water and spirit. Jesus uses the phrase, born of water and spirit, to mean the same thing as being born again or born from above. Jesus is not talking about baptism or two births here. I want you to listen to Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27. This is what Ezekiel says, I... Well, and it's God speaking. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you uh, from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you, uh, remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. 
And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Do you hear what's happening there? It's not a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. Carter and Renberg say this. In essence, God said, you need to be clean on the inside, washed with water. You need, to, uh, you need your heart to come alive by my spirit. Then and only then will you be able to obey me. And so we see here, too, that like gives birth to like. Flesh gives birth to flesh is simply referring to natural human birth, the physical. And he goes on and says, spirit gives birth to spirit. That's the supernatural. That's the spiritual. We're born from above. So Jesus teaches us that we cannot participate in the kingdom of God unless we are born from above, meaning that we have the Holy Spirit living in us. And we already talked about that as it pertains to communion, what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. Secondly, what we see today is the Spirit-filled church and the teaching of the early church. We have to flip all the way back to Acts chapter 2. So just that's just the next one, the next book over from John. But if you flip to Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 38 and 39. And this is the teaching of the early church then. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So we see here in the teaching, we need a little more background again. What's going on here? What's Peter, who is Peter talking to? What's he talking about? Uh, Luke explains in Acts chapter 2 how the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles at Pentecost. You know the story, right? Jesus told them to go back to Jerusalem and to wait there until they received the Holy Spirit. And then all of a sudden, what sounds like uh, the loud rushing wind uh, comes, and that begins to attract a large crowd. And all of a sudden, what looks like tongues of fire come and rest on each of the apostles, and they're able to speak in uh, languages they hadn't learned so that they could minister to all these people that were in Jerusalem from all over the diaspora. That's the Roman Empire at the time. And they're coming from all these different countries with all these different languages, and the apostles are able to speak in those languages and able to declare who God is and who Jesus is and what he came to do. That's what Peter is talking about here as he's preaching. He also re, uh, Luke also retells Peter's address to the crowd when they speculated that the apostles had had too much wine to drink. They're drunk. That's why they're able to do this. They're just babbling around. He says, no, that's not the case. And after Peter shares the gospel with the crowd, they're cut to the heart and ask him, what should we do? You've shared the gospel with us now. Peter does an incredible job of sharing who Jesus is and what he came to earth to do. And we see Peter's reply here. I just read it for you. He says, repent and be baptized so you can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repenting is much more than just being sorry about our sin or being sorry that we got caught in our sin. It's two things, as the NIV Life Application Bible points out. It's turning from sin, changing the direction of your life from self selfishness and rebellion against God's laws. So turning from sin and turning to Christ, depending on him for forgiveness, mercy, guidance, and purpose. It's recognizing that we are done with sin. Ah, it's been, I don't remember how many months ago. Maybe it's been weeks, I can't remember. But anyhow, reading through the Bible. I finished reading through the Bible in the year um, you know, at the end of last year and started again. But I came across Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. And man, this just really impacted me. 
And I want us to look at that today as we recognize that we're done with sin. This is what it says. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order uh, that just as Jesus was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Verse 5 says, if, but it could be since, we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that, that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. I love that. The body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we die with Christ, we would believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, uh, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are no longer under law, but under grace. We're done with sin. It's, it's over. It's dead in our lives. And so Peter couples repentance with baptism here. Baptism does not save us from our sins. That's what repentance does. Baptism identifies us with Christ and with other believers. And again, the Life Application Bible says it's a condition of discipleship and a sign of faith. So baptism is a condition of discipleship. This is something we should desire to do. And I always refer to baptism as believer's baptism because it's a step of faith that that shows outwardly what's taking place inwardly. That's the repentance. This is what's happening on the inside, and I want the world to know. And I'm going to go through believer's baptism so I can let the world know. I encourage you, if you haven't gone through believer's baptism, mark that on the back of your communication card. There's a little part that says send me info about. Mark that one. We want to talk about it. And then we'll take you right down to the pond, break a hole in the ice. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I don't want to go in there. <laughs> but we'll get you set up to do that. To go through believer's baptism, it's an incredible step of faith. Then Peter goes on, he says, you can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Coming upon those who repented while... Um, who repent. Peter experienced the gift of the Holy Spirit coming upon those who repented while he visited Cornelius. Do you remember the story? An angel comes to Cornelius and, and he tells him, send for Peter. He's in Joppa. And the Lord prepared Peter for this important evangelistic task by giving him a vision of clean and unclean animals, right? And a sheet that comes down from heaven. And, and he says, you know, kill and eat. And Peter goes, well, I've never touched any animal that's been unclean like that. No way I'm not going to do it. And God says, hey, what I say is clean is not impure. And he's simply preparing Peter for what's about to come because then as soon as that vision is done, knock, knock, knock on the door and here's Cornelius's buddies saying, hey, can you come over here and share the gospel with Cornelius and his family? 
So Peter returned to Cornelius' house and shared about Jesus of Nazareth with Cornelius and everyone who was in his house. And Peter explains that he and the other apostles were witnesses to Jesus' arrest, conviction, death, burial, and resurrection. And then what we read in Acts chapter 10, verses 44 to 48 are these words. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered uh, that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So the gift of the Holy Spirit was not reserved for just the circumcised Jews. The promise is for everyone. That's what we see in this passage in in Acts chapter 2. While Peter was addressing the crowd there, which were primarily Jews from all over the diaspora of the Roman Empire, he realized, even at Pentecost, that the gospel of Jesus Christ was for everyone. Because he's talking about their children. He says it's for you, but it's for your children. It's for those you know, that are going to hear about it later on. It's, it's for children, it's youth, and it's adults. It's for those in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, as we see in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It's for everyone the Lord calls, all ethnic groups. No one is exempt or left out. It's all inclusive. And so the teaching of the early church reminds us that the evidence of true repentance is the filling of the Holy Spirit and a desire to be baptized. And then finally, in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 7, we see the Spirit-filled church in the teaching of the apostles. So again, if you'll turn back there, just keep turning back towards Revelation. You'll find it. right after 2 Timothy. And again, it's Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. And this is the teaching of the apostles. This is what God's word says. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. We see the work of the Holy Spirit again here in the lives of those who follow Jesus. In verse 4, we see God's love expressed. The word but makes the transition to the discussion of how to deal with the sin that has enslaved us that Paul writes about earlier. God's kindness and love appeared when he sent his son Jesus from heaven to earth. God's love was expressed for us through this act. We see in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3, these words, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. God's love for us never ends. He wants us to recognize our sin and to turn to him, to be in a relationship with him. And we know God's will concerning mankind Some people will tell you that God's will and purpose is to make their life miserable. That's what they'll tell you. God's just out there to make my life miserable. Others will tell you that God is simply waiting for them to make a mistake so he can discipline them. You strike them dead. Right? That's their view of God. God's this cosmic cop out there. Boom, you're, you're guilty. But here's what God, here's what Scripture tells us. God's will is. Matthew chapter 18, verse 14. 
In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. He wants children to be saved from their sins. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, these words, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. He is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. We know God's will. He wants us to be in a relationship with him. He doesn't want, to be, doesn't want us to be separated from him because of that sin in our lives. His will is that every one of us turns from sin, repents, and seeks his salvation. And we see Jesus' work here. Jesus' purpose was to seek and to save the lost. He did that by dying on a cross, taking our sin on his body, and paying for the ransom so that we could be saved. God accepted Jesus' perfect sacrifice for our sin by allowing him to come alive again. He said, Jesus, that was what I needed. That took care of it. And in verse 5, we see that he saved us. God is the one who initiated salvation for mankind. We can't save ourselves. We can't do enough good things to be saved by God. We can't say enough good things, help enough people, give enough money. You can go on. You, you can just keep listing different things. To be saved by God, it's God's mercy that saves us. And mercy is not getting what we deserved. We see in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, these words, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Then in the second half of verse 5 and verse 6, we see how God saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal. Washing, here, some scholars believe this is referring to baptism, but baptism is not part of salvation. Salvation or baptism is, again, an outward expression of an inward decision, letting others know publicly that you've asked Jesus Christ to save you. Wearsby says this, Washing here means bathed all over. When a sinner trusts Christ, he is cleansed from all his sins, and he is made a new person by the indwelling Holy Spirit. God doesn't save you from just the current sins or the past sins. It's the future sins as well. Aren't you glad for that? Hmm. This is, it's a spiritual cleansing that removes moral stains. Psalm chapter 51, verse 7 says this, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. I was thinking about that just the other day when I was walking the dog after it had snowed, and I got to the top of the orchard, and it's a beautiful view down into the Idaville. So I took a picture, and a little bit later on, I, I posted it with this verse. and said, I'm just I'm so grateful. I'm reminded of this beautiful snow and the snow that's coming this afternoon or later this evening and then tomorrow. I'm going to think the same thing. Like, this is what Jesus did through his blood on the cross as he washed me white as snow. And we should be so grateful for that. Rebirth is the result of washing. We're made new. Our sins have been removed. And then renewal is the process of moral renovation or transformation which follows the new birth. Stott reminds us of that. And how is this done? It's done by the Holy Spirit. The washing uh, that brings about rebirth and renewal comes by the Holy Spirit. God poured out the Holy Spirit on us generously through Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit lives in us as a reminder and as evidence that we have been washed, that we've been made new, that we've been transformed. The Holy Spirit is the one who helps us to understand Scripture. He's the one who reminds us of Scripture when we're tempted to do wrong. He's the one who prompts us concerning spiritual disciplines that will deepen our relationship with God. And then why did he save us? We see it in verse 7. We see the purpose clause that begins with so that. 
It tells us why God saves us. Paul reminds us again that we've been justified by God's grace. Justification is defined as just as though I've never sinned. That's my favorite definition of it anyways. And that's how God sees us through the blood of Jesus Christ, without sin. We become his children. God saved us so that we might become heirs. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, I love. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. We become a part of God's family. And God saved us so we could be a part of his family And if we're part of his family, then we'll be able to live with him someday where he lives in heaven. We have a hope of eternal life. As God's children, we have hope for this kind of life that we need in order to spend eternity with him. Eternal life is the kind of life we need here on earth to obey God. Man, and we talked all about this, and this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. And yet to all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive him, we have the right to become children of God. If you've never made that decision, I encourage you to make that decision today. Start your year off in an incredible way of just turning your life over to the Lord Jesus Christ. Become a part of God's family. And so if, if you're making that decision today, on the back of your communication card, on, it's not one of the next steps, but it's on the side that says, send me info about. It's about becoming a believer, follower of Jesus Christ. I want to talk with you about that. So we learn from the teaching of the apostles that God saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal that takes place by the Holy Spirit that lives within us. We not only see this mark proclaimed to us through teaching, but through a picture, a metaphor, the temple of the Holy Spirit And I want you to watch this video from the Bible Project. They're a really neat uh, organization, Uh, and this is called Temple. But listen, and the important part's going to come at the end of that video. If you could go back to the city of Jerusalem during Bible times, the biggest thing you'd see is the temple. This beautiful building was designed by King David and built by King Solomon, and they believed that it was the home of the God of the universe. Wait, I thought God's home was in heaven. Well, the whole point of this earthly temple is that it's the place that overlaps with God's heavenly home. The temple is where God lives and rules all creation as king. That's cool, but even Solomon, who built the temple, didn't believe that it could contain the God of the universe, right? Yeah, the building was just a symbol, and it pointed to the fact that all of creation is God's temple. And that's actually what the first page of the Bible, Genesis 1, is all about. Really? It says that creation is God's temple? Well, it doesn't need to say it. The whole story shows it. In Genesis 1, God creates an ordered world out of a dark wasteland by speaking in a series of seven days. Then on the seventh day, God's presence fills creation as he takes up his rest and rule. Similarly, the tabernacle and later the temple were built and dedicated in a series of seven speeches and seven days, after which the priest or king could rest and rule in God's presence. Ah, so all of creation is where God intends to dwell. It's like his temple. Exactly. Now, turn the page to Genesis 2 and we get another portrait of creation. This one focuses in on the land. 
And in the center of the land is a region called Eden, which in Hebrew means delight. And in the middle of delight, God plants a garden in which God and humanity live together. And that's why the temple was modeled after the garden, filled with imagery of gold and flowers. The menorah symbolized the tree of life. It's the place where God dwells with his people. Oh, got it. And check this out. In the temple, the Israelite priests and Levites were to work and to keep the temple in God's presence. This is exactly the job description given to humanity in the Garden of Eden. So these humans were the first priests. But instead of ruling with God, they wanted to rule on their own terms, and they're exiled from the Garden Temple. And like Adam and Eve, Israel's leaders also wanted to rule on their own terms, and they too were exiled. The temple was destroyed, and this left them wondering, did God give up on Israel? Will God bring about a new creation? Well, the biblical prophets anticipated the day when God would create a new temple with a new priesthood. That's when God's presence would fill all of creation. And when the Israelites returned to the land, they did rebuild the temple. But that temple didn't turn out the way the prophets hoped. In fact, later Israelite prophets said that this temple was hopelessly corrupt. So they're still waiting for the ultimate temple. And here we come to the story of Jesus. He said that through him, God's presence and rule was coming into our world in a new way and he presented himself as a new kind of priest. But Jesus wasn't a priest, and he didn't work in the temple. Right, Jesus said that God's presence, his rest and rule, was filling the world through his own life, death, and resurrection. Jesus was claiming that he was the true temple, and this new temple would expand out to include all of creation. That's a really big claim. And it got even bigger. After his resurrection, Jesus said that God's presence would come to dwell in and among his followers so that they would become mini temples. Communities of people where God rests and rules. Exactly. This is the Bible's vision of the church, which is described as a temple. Not a building, but people. Yeah, like when Peter says, you all are living stones built up as a temple for God's spirit to dwell. So at the end of the story, do we ever get a new physical temple? Well, not exactly. What we see is a renewed cosmic temple, just like Genesis 1. And this new creation doesn't need a temple building because through Jesus, all creation is now the place where God rests and rules the world with his people. Isn't that neat? takes us all the way through from all from creation from the very beginning to where we are today we are the temple of the holy spirit of god he lives within us and so that's the metaphor that we see we see the imagery in scripture first corinthians chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 don't you know that you yourselves are god's temple and that god's spirit lives in you if anyone destroys god's temple god will destroy him for god's temple is sacred and you are that temple that sanctity of human life right there. <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. 
And as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are God's temple since the Holy Spirit lives within us. So how does all of this apply to us today then? How will we know if this mark of the church marks our church? Are we a spirit-filled church? Three things. We will look uh, like a new people. Peter talks about it in chapter 2 of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Our unity, our pursuit of holiness, and love for one another will be evident to our community and those around us. We will look like a new people. Number two, we will have a new perspective. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, For God said, Let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so we will recognize the glory of God as we shine his light to those around us. It is serving within our giftedness. You're going to hear more about that in just a moment. Number three, we will walk in a new power as we see in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on, on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This wasn't just for the apostles. That's exactly what happened to them, but it's not just for them. It's for us as, as well, as followers of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit will give us boldness in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with those locally, domestically, and internationally. And our desire is to have a church filled with people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. We don't want just people coming for the sake of coming. We want them to come because we want them to be transformed. We want them to grow in their walk with the Lord. We want them to have an intimate relationship with Him. We want the Holy Spirit to be using that, their giftedness in the church. And so we had you take a, a survey from Restore Renewal Ministries. <clears throat> and these eight marks, there was five questions for each of these eight marks. So was that 40 questions? <laughs> And the very first one was the Spirit-filled church. And four of those five questions from the Spirit-filled church section were in the top ten of the most difficult for us as a church. Five of the ten that were most difficult for us were about the Spirit-filled church. I'm sorry, did I say five? I meant four. Four. Another four that were most difficult for us of those ten, so that's eight out of ten, is the Spirit United Church that we're going to talk about in several weeks. So this is important for us to understand what it means to be a Spirit-filled church, to be a Spirit United Church. Here's the four of the five questions from the Spirit-filled church that were in the top ten of the most difficult for us. The most difficult of all of the survey questions was this one. The people in our church understand what their spiritual gifts are and regularly use them to serve our church in tangible ways. That was the most difficult one for us of all the survey questions. The next one, that this was number five of the top ten, the people in our church consistently live out the fruits of the Spirit in their everyday lives. The sixth out of the ten is the people in our church know what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the, ten, the tenth one out of the ten is our church consistently teaches on the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit in various teaching settings. So how do we address these questions? How do we take what's been really difficult for our church to understand and, and implement and, and help? How do we answer those questions? 
We've provided and will continue to provide a spiritual gift survey for every church attender. If you were at our um, Mission Possible meeting um, in, De- in December, we handed those out. And Pastor Mark will have those available this morning at the Welcome Center where you can just pick up one of the spiritual gift surveys. It's not many questions. Uh, I don't remember how many are on that, but it's not that many. We encourage you to just take it and fill it out. And then we will counsel you. Pastor Mark and I want to counsel you with how to use your spiritual gifts in a tangible way to serve the church. That's all a part of this. And so the first next step might be for you today. It's on the back of your communication card, and it's to take the spiritual gift survey and begin using my spiritual gifts in a tangible way to serve the church. How do we address the second one? Living out the fruits of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit are found in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, and here they are. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Our theme for this year is love one another. Here's my challenge. How are you using the fruit of the Spirit in your everyday life? And I would just encourage you to maybe choose one of those fruit to begin living out every day in your life. And that's the second next step this morning is to choose at least one of the fruit of the Spirit and begin using it in my everyday life. Asking the Lord to understand how you should use that fruit every day. The third one was, how do, we, or how do we become filled with the Holy Spirit? What does that mean? And make sure that we're transformed as disciples of Jesus Christ. As I mentioned, we are dead to sin and alive to Christ. We no longer desire to pursue the things of this world and the evil in it. Our thoughts and actions and speech are controlled by the Holy Spirit. And so the third next step today might be to just allow the Holy Spirit to control my thoughts, actions, and speech. And finally, as leadership, we will make a concerted effort to highlight teaching about the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit through messages and lessons. As that comes up, we want to take time to focus upon that. On the front of your bulletin this morning, we listed some core values. These are the core values that we developed at the Dream Retreat, and one of them really addresses what we're talking about this morning about being uh, the Spirit-filled church. We are a church who encourages our members to discover, develop, and use their spiritual gifts. That's a core value for us. Under the growth strategy proven process section of our strategic planning this year, we're committed to our membership knowing their spiritual gifts and using them. And we're also committed to the fruit of the Spirit being evident in our body. Under the goals for this year, one of the annual goals for 2022 is to have a 20% increase in volunteerism for the Wednesday evening and Sunday morning services, having people serve within their areas of giftedness. But we have to know where you're gifted. And so we want you to take that spiritual gift test. One of the quarterly goals is to have the Board of Administration take the spiritual gift survey. They've done that. Another quarterly goal is to have you all take the spiritual gift survey. Many of you have done that. And if you haven't, again, I encourage you to take that survey. I want to close with this illustration from Francis Chan. He says, I cannot make someone fall in love with Jesus. It really came home for me, literally, with my own teenage daughter, who 18 months ago uh, was not in love with Jesus. I spent nights crying, bawling, praying to the Lord. Here I am, known for my ability to communicate, but there was nothing I could do for my own daughter that would make her fall in love with Jesus. Of course, I could still guide and lead her, but I was powerless to convict her. I prayed... God, either your spirit comes into her 
or your spirit doesn't. It doesn't matter how great a dad I am. I cannot bring her to life. One day she came into my room and said, You were right, Dad. The Holy Spirit was not in me, but now he is. She walked about, or she talked about how near she was to God and how everything had changed. My wife and I were skeptical. We wanted to see evidence of change, but 18 months later, I can say she really is a new creation. I didn't do that, it was the Holy Spirit. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And so often we try to do that work of the Holy Spirit in our children's lives or in the lives of others uh, that we care about, that we love. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit. But see, we want to be a body of believers who are not just uh, have all the pews filled. We want to be a body of believers who has all the pews filled and those people in those pews are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the desire. That's the hope. That's why... We went through the process that we did with Restore Renewal Ministries. That's why we're pushing so hard for the spiritual gift inventories and and surveys. Because we need to be spirit-filled people serving a great and awesome God. And so as the worship team comes this morning to close us in song, would you stand with us and just allow the Holy Spirit to work in your heart and in your mind as, uh, as we sing this song, Oceans. It's a reminder that sometimes he calls us.